You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Hi, this is Dori Berenstein. Welcome to Deep Dive Broadway. I'm truly thrilled to welcome three incredible gentlemen from the underworld of Beetlejuice. I adore and admire each one tremendously. Mark Kaufman, Executive Vice President of Warner Brothers Theatre Ventures. He has been uh, responsible for such shows as The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, Hairspray, Elf, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Alex Timbers, two-time Tony-nominated writer and director. He's represented on Broadway right now with two other shows. Uh, So three total, which is incredible. Uh, David Burns' masterful American Utopia and the monster hit Moulin Rouge. Uh, And finally, joining us is star extraordinaire Alex Brightman, two-time Tony-nominated Best Actor who recently starred in School of Rock, who is Beetlejuice. Let's dive in. Welcome. I am so excited to be talking with you about Beetlejuice, which is basically the soundtrack of my home. (laughs) Um, I'm not kidding. My, My son is beyond obsessed with the show. Uh, it is it is the show that we see over and over and over again, and not just because he's obsessed, because we love it. How old is your son? Um, he's in college. That's right. But he <laughs> he uh, loves it and is uh, doing his best to promote the show to the world. Good, um, unofficial so street awesome. team. And totally uh, on the street team. It's you know it's captured him on every level. You know your performance, your direction. Your original vision and <laughs> and just the 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 incredible world that you're transported to, um, and uh, and so just my own passion for it, but also his love for it is very very infectious, and uh, so it's an honor to be talking to you guys today about your incredible show. So that's super nice. Wait, name names. What's his name? Noah Campbell. Noah, thank you for listening to the album and liking the show. Loving the show. Oh, Loving sorry, my bad. Show. We'll cut that out. <laughs> uh, so I, what, what I'd love to do is just to get a real deep sense of your creative process and how you came to create this magnificent show. So, Mark, day one. What day happened? Day one. Wow. That was, uh, well, that's how we started. It's a okay. reflex. There we go. Uh, you know, to be completely frank, uh, I inherited Beetlejuice. Day one was... Hey, we're producing Beetlejuice. Do you want to continue? Yes. And Alex Timbers is directing it. Oh, my God. I've never met Alex. And I was a big fan of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson. And do you even know this? That, I think none of that. Because we had never had a meeting until I started working with Warner Bros. And then, so, Alex, we, we met at a, at a restaurant. And we had a, a, what I thought was an amazing conversation, although I don't remember it because I was too in awe of being like, oh my God, I'm sitting with Alex <laughs> Timbers. Um, and one thing that stayed with me, which I, I talk about it all the time, is he pitched the set having, the production and the set having an arc like a character, which I thought was brilliant. And I didn't quite understand what he truly meant until Dave Corns came in and laid out Alex's vision that the house changes from the Maitland's house to the Dietz's house to Beatrice's house and then to where we end up at the, in the show. And I, when I tell people about that, that's, that's my biggest takeaway from the creative process because that sold me on Alex as much as it was like, oh my God, and I get to work with him and this is what he came up with. 
completely understand your reaction. How long ago was that? Uh, that was a little about maybe eight years and two months ago. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I wasn't even born yet. <laughs> <laughs> wow, guys. So that isn't really day one. So go back to Alex just for a second. You get the call, and you you know would you From like Kevin, to direct right? Beetlejuice? What yeah, it, it sort of didn't. Weirdly, I, the call was, uh, "Would you like to direct Risky Business, the musical?" Oh. <laughs> if we're actually going back yeah. to that, yeah, might and well. uh, we we started developing it a little bit, and I think there started to be a sort of a sneaking suspicion that like maybe maybe it wasn't like, you know, I didn't know if I was like the right person to do Risky Business, the musical, uh, though I liked everyone on it. And at a certain point, uh, Kevin Kevin McCormick, who Mark uh, spoke about, and, uh, and my co-producer, yeah, they're partners on this. And they said, he said, "What about Beetlejuice?" And I thought that was, you know, as someone who you know uh, saw Beetlejuice, you know, in the theater when I was ten, you know, that movie has a lot of, uh, you know, sort of like imaginative power in my life. And I remember like. Uh, you know, feeling like, oh my gosh, this is about outsiders. This is, a, you know, in the, the visual the visual world of Tim Burton. So I said, can I think about it? And so we went away and we sort of came back together. And I think with, with Mark and Kevin, we sort of came up with kind of a couple principles. One, we wanted to center the uh, musical more on Beetlejuice and Lydia, who are more like secondary characters in the movie and sort of followed their emotional arcs. We saw them as a sort of yins and yangs of each other. And kind of like trickster conmen figures, which musicals do really well. Second, we wanted to have like a homemade DIY quality, uh, you know, just like the sort of like the Bertonian world. We want it to be a kind of magic box set where it all kind of took place mostly in one location, which it still does, which Mark t talked about, like that has sort of evolution, like the house in The Shining. And uh, so being like a haunted house show um, in a way. And, uh, and, and, and we want it to be really, really funny. You know, the movie feels really funny. Sometimes I think when you feel, you know, when you go see a musical theater, I always talk about like the kind of like anesthetization, sorry, I'm screwing up that word, by musical theater of like these movies that you love that have a sort of grit and interest. And so uh, that was something that, that uh, Mark and Kevin really embraced. They were like, okay, let's go with the funniest writers and funniest performers we can and lean hard into the emotion and the comedy and the mischief. And uh, I would say that while the show's had like a wild journey, we could talk about draft one being like so insanely different from the oh, wow. current draft on yeah. stage. But I would say that those principles that everyone sort of embraced early on, that that's sort of, I, I feel like, what's on stage now. No, and, and you brought up the thing about focusing on the Lydia um, Beetlejuice relationship because when you look at the movie poster, the poster is Beetlejuice and the Maitlands. And for our, you know, our campaign, it's Beetlejuice and, the, and Lydia. And we wanted to be, you know, we wanted her to be the alphabet character. We wanted Beetle, to be a, uh, this amazing relationship between the two main characters. And we wanted her to be somebody to relate to. And Beetlejuice, you know, what I love about Alex's vision for it, and I'm talking about Alex Brightman now, is that um, it's his vision for Beetlejuice and what he brings to the stage is not the Michael Keaton version. It, and, it's, and, you know, there was also a cartoon version. It's the Alex Brightman version. Absolutely. And it pays homage to it, but it's its own thing. And that's what's really important, that his, his, he's not trying to do what he did in the movie. He, he didn't make it a souvenir of Keaton's performance. He actually brought Alex Brightman to it, and that's what's so amazing. Well, I think that's something that's so key to any successful movie-to-stage adaptation, that it, you know, you have the inspiration, you have the basic story, but then 
you basically start from scratch and create what is what is this on stage and and really recreating the whole thing and so you know it is so unique for the stage um alex you know yeah uh, when you when this project came to you <laughs> i like that you think that it just came to me yeah well of course of course it just landed in your <laughs> That's lap right. as most things do because definitely. i think just about anybody who heard oh alex brightman is starring in beetlejuice it was like well of course he is you that's know? the nicest thing ever <laughs> that was i mean that's still a shock when people just assume that's the right thing only because how hard anybody has to audition for anything um it's different than like hollywood when people do get just put them in this movie put them in that movie and they just sort of wedge their way into something that may not fit musical theater is in my opinion and broadway especially is still a meritocracy it has this sort of, you know, yeah, you've done six Broadway shows, but that was then. This is now. Now audition for us and prove that you're still talented. And I like that. There's something about that that is not, you are not your resume on, in, uh, in theater because you are constantly evolving and potentially getting worse. So <laughs> I like the idea of having to continually prove yourself. So when, when you say this came to me, what came to me was a phone call 24 hours before I walked into a room and got to audition for Alex Timbers for the very first time. Um, we had circled around each other at like parties, at like opening nights, mm -hmm. and every once in a That's while right. I got the balls enough to say like, I want to work with you someday. And then I would like run away. Um, <laughs> and I had worked with Mark on uh, a number of things, two things, one thing at that point, right? right. Called Night Shift. Yep. It was a musical That's adaptation of the movie Night Shift. And I was doing that, and I had just finished that, and then got this call to come in the next day to read a couple of sides, uh, a couple of pages, and sing a bit of the opening number, as it was then, and did not have a ton of time to do it, so I sort of just did the thing that most people do, which is like, do the best you can, show who you are in the room, rather than show somebody else, just go, here's who I am. Um, did that to the best of my ability, had a really good time doing it, uh, walked out, said, I think I'd cast myself if I was in there, and went home and found out very quickly that I was gonna do the reading. That's great, but what was even cooler is that over the last four and a half years, Every time we've done it, or sorry, I should say every time they've done it, they've continued to ask me back. And I think that is two-sided. One, it's like a virtue of working super hard even after you have the job, because you don't really have the job until it's yours. Uh, and also them for their faith in something that is, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not really a name. Like, you know, I don't sell a ton of tickets just by my name alone. I hope to someday, but like I was really as much of an ensemble member than everybody else. So to work hard and to have their faith to work hard and to be given the permission to try things and be a little dangerous, I think helped with the show in general. Well, I, I have to argue that coming, you know, back to back, School of Rock going right into, you know, Beetlejuice. Part all right, I sell of, like know, 20 tickets. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was also like, oh, well, he was like, I'm not get, vacating my dressing room unless right. you give me the next show here. You yeah, know. and typically yeah. only only do shows that require only a thousand percent of my energy. Exactly. Your yeah. appearance in Wolf Hall was really under Harold. Well, yeah, but I was, it was a cameo because I was preparing for the next thing. Yeah, I was really saving it. So the so finding the Beetlejuice character, your Beetlejuice character yeah. came much later. It, it didn't come during your audition. You weren't trying to to be that. No, I, honestly, in the Beetlejuice audition I first did, I came out going, boy, if I actually do get this, I think this might be my last show because my voice was on fire because I just was doing what a little bit of what Keaton did and just what I thought a monster would sound like and it just wasn't healthy. So it was sort of that weird 
handcuff situation where you do get offered the thing and you go, great. And then you go, how on earth am I going to sustain this? <laughs> so the, the Beetlejuice voice and character sort of evolved as we went on. I thankfully had the time to find the nuances and make him likable, even though he's a bad guy, and make him way different than the movie and cartoon and infuse both. And then the voice came with, you know, there's videos online now of my vocal cords having learned the things I've learned to make it sustainable through a process called ventricular fold phonation, which I will not get into because we will be here for the next hour and a half. But you can, but you can look it up online. And, but I just have to ask, is that something that you said, ooh, I'm going to figure out how to do this or just your voice naturally No, it was a choice it. completely. Yeah. I wanted to figure it out because when I was doing it to success, it didn't feel good. So I was like, I want to do this to success to the point where I can do this eight times a week because in School of Rock, I, I created a role that was not sustainable. And that was my big learning lesson. I hemorrhaged my vocal cords like eight months into the run, and it's never been the same. So I knew very cautiously going into this, like, I can't do the same thing now. And I don't just mean just for me, because if I leave the show, someone else has to do it. So I don't want to ruin other people's lives and by making something that is impossible to do. And I think I might have done that with School of Rock. I think it, it was clear. I mean, I, it was something, a big learning lesson. Make something that's great, but also something you can do eight times a week. I sure. think that is important for theater. I think we should strive to do eight times a week, not strive to make a role that's possible only five times a week. Yeah. Well, that's a whole other podcast. We'll yeah. have to talk about that. I'll come later. back whenever. <laughs> um, I live at the Winter Garden, so I'm right down the street. <laughs> uh, going back to uh, you walked into the door, Mark. Alex was attached and with his amazing vision that you really just Im immediately embraced. But that was that was eight years ago, you mm -hmm. know. And so, could you talk us through the creative process? And and Alex, uh, please sure. jump in also sure. about how you, you know, how all the steps uh, along the way to get to Broadway. Well, I mean, Alex. It wasn't just Alex. Alex then introduced me to Scott and Anthony, who were going to write the book, who Alex had worked on um, Gutenberg, and I had known. This is one of those things that was easy because. You know, when you know the property and you're familiar and you're a fan, you're like, oh, great. These are the guys I get to work with. That's the, you know, so being handed those guys and Alex was, was kind of a treat. And then the difficult part for us, I think, was finding the right voice because this, you know, the, aside from the fact that there are two musical numbers that are unbelievably iconic that you guys pull off, both Alex and Alex, in the most unbelievable way and uh, I mean that's one of the oh, from the movie, the, from the movie that you guys pull off on stage in such an amazing way but also Danny Elfman wrote the music to the film and there needed to be something and it was it's iconic score that you hear in tons of trailers and it's very oh this is very Burton-esque and, and we also wanted to make sure we pay tribute by you know to Burton and to Elfman but not actually you know but do our own thing which is what Alex has done so we need to find a composer and a lyricist that could do just that. And it took us like... like Several years. Yeah, it's like, I would say almost three, three and a half, four years to find the right composer lyricist. And we met, I mean, with tons. And we... we I mean, Really, with, with really, really talented and, people. And some of them... Some of them would... Um, uh, some of them would... Uh, had done demos for us. And they were amazing, but... I was know, on the demo for one of the people that spec'd for this show. That's hysterical. Wow. I found it the other day. I That's have amazing. it. Oh my God, I gotta hear about this. <laughs> yep. But, and these, and some of these songs, I mean, I've listened to, uh, you know, the ones that we still have, it, they're amazing. And they're, you know, in their own right, they could be another show. But 
there had to be something. It wasn't until I think we literally got to Eddie where, I mean, yeah, I think at that point there was like, there was, there was a sort of moment right before the moment with it. Cause we got sort of, of where it was kind of like anyone who has an idea, you know, there were sort of briefs, you know, we would talk to them about like, here are two song spots we'd love you to try and things like that. And it really was fun. Like Eddie, we got these unsolicited demos uh, over the email from this guy in Melbourne and uh, and imme- like instantly called each other and we're like, oh, this is... Yeah, we all felt it because it. it felt... It was so interesting because, we again, we, we all... The one thing that's really was really positive when we went into this is um, that all of us had the same sound. Kevin you know, Kevin and I would talk about this all the time and you talked about it with, with, the, with Scott and Anthony. We all knew exactly what we were looking for. So that was why when Eddie came along, we all were, it, it was like a light went off. You, it was simultaneous light bulbs around all five of us. Um, and it was pretty amazing. And the first two songs he submitted, both of them in the show, was a version of Whole Being Dead Thing and Dead Mom. Oh my gosh. So right from the get-go, those songs made it into the show. And yeah. and it was the tone, it was the sense of humor, it was it was everything yeah. that story, you just, emotion, yeah. um, and hit it off well with the book writers immediately. Mm. It co- super collaborative, you know, one can't, you know, a musical theater is the most collaborative meeting medium I've ever encountered, uh, you know, and, and uh, one can't underestimate how important it is that people like Alex and Mark and Eddie and Anthony, and Scott, all the people that work on it are, so uh, easygoing and like-minded, you know, that, that really, really helps. And then after that, I would say there were a lot of hotel rooms oh and, uh, and, uh, and conference calls and like, let's meet up in Burbank for two days and break story on the second half of act one and pe- lots of emails and getting on the phone and, um, and collaboration that way. Cause you know, what's Anthony lived in, I live in New York, you live in New York. Anthony and Kevin McCormick live in LA. And Scott lives in Scott lives in the Berkshires. Yep. <laughs> and uh, and then And then you have Eddie in Australia. Australia. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. Time zone. <laughs> that was most tough. And and as you were creating this, uh, at what point did did the look and feel start to infiltrate how the show was taking shape? Because you've you've you know, with David Corrin's have created such an extraordinary world, but it it's so interactive with the uh, the scene work and the and the staging yeah. and the, everything else. I'm sure that it, it wasn't just you know up oh, here's our set and you came to it later on. It was. Well, I mean, I mean, Alex. I think from the start you wanted you wanted David. I've for, I've I never mean, I don't know about you, Mark, but I've never worked on a show where the set designer was involved that early. He he came on. We just knew that was going to be a big part of it. He came on. Uh, uh, you know, after the book writers, before Eddie. Yeah, yeah. no, and, and, and basically also because you pitched his set as, as like I said, a character. What was And I had just worked with um, Corin's, you know, maybe six months before he had created The House for Misery. That was amazing. Yeah. And which to me yeah. still is one of the most amazing sets I've ever seen. And anyway, so when he's talking about building another house, I was like, oh, you built the Misery house? Hey, but why, why not build the Maitland house? <laughs> it was like, it was a very easy, um, you know, segue. And one of the other things just to mention, because this is true about you, Dory, too, but it's also true about Alex Brightman, Mark Kaufman, and 
uh, and David Corns is one of the things I love most in terms of collaborating with people in a kind of whole body way is collaborating with multi-hyphenates, right? Uh, Alex is a writer. He's a producer. He's an actor. He's an improv comedian. He, you know, Mark is also a writer and a producer. And Dave Corns does award shows, and he has a business. And you're a filmmaker. You're like, you know, I think people that that can look at projects from multiple angles all at once uh, are the sort of it feels to me it's the most satisfying form of collaboration. And I think for Corins, you know, having been a producer of Edge Theater Company, yeah. being a sort of writer director figure himself in certain ways and an interior designer and a restaurant designer and all that stuff, it, it, it just made, made that collaboration really rich from the beginning while you, storytelling is still fomenting, you know? I also felt, I mean, one of the things just to go on about Corns for a minute is that I felt he was so invested in the project immediately. It wasn't, it wasn't a job. I, I mean, literally from the first time we discussed it, he actually brought it up to me when we were doing Misery. And then when we met, we had our first meeting, he, it, was, it was just so natural for him. It wasn't about like pitching, oh, I should be the guy for you. It was, oh, this is the way I see it. And, it, and again, that dovetailing with Alex's original vision, it was very clear that this was going to be you know, the way the process, and it was a really good process, uh, the way it worked. And also, well, sound and lighting being oh. is so essential for the show in such a, you know, being completely visionary, but also what you were saying before, so collaborative and integrated into what the overall vision is. And so uh, did that, those guys come on board? I mean, I'll let you talk, I'll let you, Alex, talk about that. But for me personally, it's, it's, that's actually a tribute to Alex and actually Alex, because that this tech process putting those pieces together unlike any show i've ever seen because you have magic tricks dovetailing with visuals or dovetailing with uh sets and set movement it, it was such an intricate 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 process um and we had an entire tech table dedicated to smoke like, <laughs> it was like, there were more tech tables in this theater than yeah. it looked like nasa i mean it was crazy oh gosh. but it was because we yeah. have departments that most shows never require other than like you know maybe now Harry Potter, but we had like illusions department that was different than the magic department. Sure, it was different than the you know special effects. It was like crazy how hyper specific things got, and how many people had to get hired because of this. Yeah, yeah and we had we had flow charts about like all this effect and this effect, you know, and everything. We kept coming back to that Tim Burton DIY thing. How do you? I read this book early on about where he talked about like making Batman versus making Batman Returns, and the thing he realized was that you can't really apply that kind of like handmade aesthetic as well to these sort of bigger. And so immediately I was like, oh, that's well, that's exactly what we do in theater. It's like how do you how do you make things handmade? And so for us, a lot of the time it was like, okay, so here are three different ways you can do that. What's the most um, sort of low tech way and lo fi way? And so we kept sort of coming back to that, and that was kind of fun. So we'd have these like flow charts about all the different, here's how you do the burning in the hand and the thing. And, you know, here's who's taking the lead on that. Here's who's supporting. And, and, um, and as we built the team out, it was, it was really wonderful for me. I always, since I was doing downtown theater, I've always loved to work with sort of like two designers I've worked with before and have a great relationship with and two ones that I'm meeting for the first time. Cause I think it always challenges you, but it also gives you a comfort zone. And, um, and so for this Corns and Hylensky were people at, I'd work, Hylensky is the sound and Peter Negrini did the video, but then Michael Curry, our puppet designer, who's a, you know, world renowned was brand new and Ken Posner lighting designer, who's amazing. And William Ivy Long, the costume designer that 
we all revere and dream and wish we were. <laughs> oh uh, you, I Mike never Weber worked with him. I mean, you've yeah. worked with him extensively. Yeah, I, mean, I worked with him on Hairspray, so this was, and this was such a different, I mean, if you look at Edna's costume, you look at Beetlejuice's costume, I mean. <laughs> no similarity. <Yeah>. No similarity. <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> surprisingly none. <laughs> Can I say one thing just about like this design process and having to hire the, all the different people is that what, what was cool about that is that some, a lot of these people didn't, we didn't just get to meet starting in the theater. We right. got to meet them in the room. And what was great personally for me in any type of rehearsal day was, uh, just to give an example, there was a day where it was like, what would it, wouldn't it be funny if I crossed my leg and then what if I crossed a third leg? Like, wouldn't that, and we had that conversation like on a break or something like that. I remember it was something that wasn't necessarily in the day's plan. And then the next day, uh, our props people had kind of jerry-rigged what would be sort of a third leg idea and just seeing it work even in the very low-tech mannequin leg-style version, is what then led to the thing that's on stage now, which is a delight. But it was things like that. We got a chance as actors to go, what if this, what if that, knowing that if the what if was a yes, maybe in 24 hours we'd have at least a version of that to use to just to see if it was right. Rather than everyone thinking about it and going, no, I don't think that's going to work. Or right. We could just see right away whether it was going to work or not because we had the people in the room. Well, that, well that, that's exactly right. And I think it speaks to a, like a larger thing. First of all, I'd like to say that Beetlejuice on stage would be nothing like it is without Alex Brightman having been involved with all the development. <laughs> 100%. And feeding in exactly to the writing. And these ideas, I mean, he could have been like uh, a director for Hanna-Barbera back in the day. I mean, this guy <laughs> thinks in terms of sound effects and gags for days and visual. I mean, it is Days great. take longer, but I feel like they're worth it. <laughs> yeah. No, it's so fantastic. And what, what it really caused us to do, and, and because I think we had, uh, particularly with the book writers, like TV writers who are like fast are like work for Broad City. So they're like, throw out a joke, put in alts, all that stuff, is I think it gave us, as we did the development, a real shorthand with each other to be able to say, let's throw that out, let's try this new idea, let's try this, hey, on a lunch break, let's let's do this different thing in the afternoon. And um, and also with working with Mark and Kevin, it, it made us all work, so that when we came out of DC and we said, okay, here's a big pivot, it meant we all were like like a comedia troupe that yeah, had been working together for 20 years and we're like, okay, we can do it, let's, yep. let's nail it, you know? Well, you also have this thing where you like to top yourself, and I mean, that, you know, to your credit, you also, oh, that that's good, but I, I could do better. I feel like that's one of the things. We came out of DC at the end of the first act, which people went nuts. Uh, you weren't you weren't at all satisfied, and we did something, and we created, you know, the Beetlejuice puppet, which had all these different iterations, but ended up in the best possible form, and takes everybody by storm at the end of the show, at the end of the first act. That's great. Um, I'm very happy that we changed that. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's funny, by the way, just stepping back for a second, I actually thought you were going to talk about something else. When we were doing our workshop uh, down at Beirut when, during the, along the process, I thought you were going to talk about how um, the costume and set design, uh, costume and um, makeup? makeup guys would come in and we actually oh, yeah. would look at, I mean, that getting the Beetlejuice look, look. just right for everybody, not just oh, yeah. for yeah. Alex and Alex, but also for the studio and for we our, did like us, eight or nine different makeup and costumey sort of tests, but certainly makeup was, it went from exactly the movie to something that was really too grotesque. I remember there was something that was like, we can't even pay attention because it's so awful. I mean, it was like out of a horror movie to something way too cartoony to something we kind of decided on, which was like, I was pulling a lot of faces in the room 
and sort of figuring that out as I went. And so I think what we came ended up coming up with was that wanted something that would just be contoured enough to change my face that I could sort of add the finishing touches with my face, mm -hmm. which I think is really successful because you don't want to hide behind a mask because then you're just seeing the mask and you might as well just be seeing a theme park show. Yeah, that yeah, that's the thing. It's like Alex Bregman is so funny and mm -hmm. so moving in this show and what we ended up doing and loving him in all the developments and then we'd put this makeup on and you'd be like, we'd lose something in a huge way and so it felt like how sort of in the end kind of like how little do we need to do so we don't mask his performance at all because it's you, so you had said like bowie and elephant man you'd said like it was something there was like how far uh, can we dial it back so it's not bowie and elephant man but it's like <laughs> just a little base on top of that thanks so much for listening to part one of deep dive broadway coming up more incredible stories on the creative evolution of the hit musical beetlejuice Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot -E 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 org because only together we rise.